Hello, welcome to the Jew 3 Project Podcast. I'm your host, Lisa Fields. I'm the founder of the Jew 3 Project. And we're live now. Well, thank you for watching another episode of the Jew 3 Project Podcast. And you know, if you've been listening I told you we're going to do more Google Hangouts, so you'll be able to watch it um, on YouTube, Facebook, and you'll also be able to listen to it um, on iTunes. So we want to catch you on every angle um, to make sure that you get equipped. And today we have a very special guest. I'm excited about it. Dr. Eric Mason. Welcome, Dr. Mason. How are you doing? Good I'm to doing be with you. Good to, good to have you. I'm personally excited because during undergrad, I was a Epiphany podcast junkie. No. Um, <laughs> I used to listen to the podcast every week. Uh, that Jonah series you did on introspection, I probably had it memorized. Uh, it really was a <laughs> life-changing series wow, in my life. That's crazy. Wow. Um, so it's it's crazy to be to fast forward and be having a conversation right now. Um, because I used to love, um, I, and I still do, uh, love the Epiphany Fellowship podcast. Um, so make sure y'all subscribe to that on iTunes, just a little plug. Um, but uh, we're excited to have you because you're having a conference, um, Thrive, your Thrive organization is having a, is it Frequency? Yep. yep. I, am I mixing it up? Okay. Um, on Apologetics Jude uh, 3, Contending for the Faith which is our mm -hmm. heartbeat here at the Jew 3 Project. Um, what kind of inspired you to hold this conference? You have one every year with different themes, but this year you wanted to uh, focus on apologetics in the urban context. Well, it's funny. My project manager was about to go live with an entirely different um, conference theme. Mm -hmm. uh, to be honest, I've written up another conference theme like every year, the week after the conference, or a few weeks after, we're ready to to start looking at what we're going to be thematically engaging and helping serve the urban context with. And Lisa, as I, you know, as I, you know, you guys, what you guys are doing, which I want to big up you guys. And I want to let anybody know that's watching this, that you need to subscribe to every Jude project, everything. So just do it. <laughs> I think it's amazing. It's an amazing, I mean, a fantabulous resource. And so I actually keyed into some of the stuff y'all were doing already. And then I was dealing with stuff on the street. Then I started seeing YouTube. And I was just like, what in the world? Like I it like it almost seemed like in like November of last year, in between November and February, there was just this explosion of um Pan-Africanism. It's always been there, but just more of a YouTube sort of thing. You you have Sonetta TV, which a lot of people watch. Um, you even have um, uh, other, you, you, of course you got Omar Johnson, you got other people that are out there, but you got just all of this stirring and it's, and it's basically, I feel like for me, I feel like the killings that happened, the unarmed black men, the murders of them, seem like the church just hasn't been answering it. And so it seemed like, the more silent we seem to have been, I'm not saying the church hasn't been, because I know people have been dealing with it from pulpits, but it just wasn't out there in people's minds and there was no leading presence of the church. And so it almost 
kicked off mass exoduses from churches. I started hearing from different friends of mine. I said, Eric, I know you read all that stuff. I need something. I started getting calls from pastors. I said, I said, it's clear what we need to do this conference on because, uh, and I started reading Jude again and I had already been reading a ton of books, you know, just trying to get myself re-energized on Egyptology and Hebrew Israelites and um, Al-Islam. I haven't really been dealing with the Islam stuff because they really don't let you evangelize them, to be Mm -hmm. honest. But um, so it's been really more so Pan-Africanism, Black nationalism, unredeemed, because I don't believe all of that's necessary wrong. It's just when it's unredeemed, it's it's, it's something else. And then, um, you know, just the whole Egyptology, the comedic sciences resurging again, which I studied in the early 90s, late, you know, when I was in college, you know. So that's what that's what sort of burned it is just the need. And it seemed to be people seem to respond to the need for the body to be this to be a tool to equip people with that. So, yeah. For those who don't know now, we did a, a show on um, black Hebrew Israelites, but the pan-Africanism for a lot of people, they have no clue um, what it is. Could you give us kind of just an overview? of their beliefs yeah basically in general pan-africanism is the desire to connect with african diaspora across the earth and basically Mm -hmm. unify them comprehensively so economically psychologically ideologically nationalistically in particular and uh, spiritually and so that but that comes in so many forms just like denominations or hebrew israelite camps or it comes in all different types of forms so with Pan-Africanism in this country, um, not all Pan-Africanists are black nationalists. And so um, a lot of the old heads know what black nationalists is, but basically believe that blacks should be separate and have their own separate state and have their own function, freely functioning society without the oppression of whites. So um, where Pan-Africanists wouldn't necessarily say they want separation as much as they want to be able to explore their identity. And so um, you have Massey, who disciple W.E.B. Du Bois is one of the fathers of Pan-Africanism. Um, he, he's uh, he's one of the one of the huge components of modern day Pan-Africanism. But most Pan-Africanists uh, attribute uh, really modern day Pan-Africanism to W.E.B. Du Bois and was carried along really through. That's who I mean. If you if you if you read like Noble Drew Ali, which is an old deal. If you read Noble Drew Ali, you read. Elijah Muhammad, 23 scientists, Marcus Garvey, you've heard, you, you've heard tenets of the teachings of Massey because Massey pretty much discipled and created and built out what modern day to me, um, Pan-African is, even though they wouldn't call him the father of Pan-Africanism, um, what's the guy's name? His name is uh, Edward um, Blyden, which they would call the father of Pan-Africanism. But, and so pretty much that's what Pan-Africanism is. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And how do you engage them on um, on in in Philly? Because I know uh, they're probably in the inner urban cities more than we would get it like down south. How yeah. is your approach um, to them? Because I know it's it's sometimes hard. Sometimes when I talk to people, especially when you reference stuff, they want to make sure that it's a black author. If it's not a black author, then sometimes uh, they don't want to hear it. Um, and it's just it gets kind of it gets all kind of crazy. I went to a um, debate with a Pan Africanist and a a black scholar 
um, and they were debating um, just Christianity. And he, the black scholar was spitting truth, but he basically got heckled uh, by the crowd of people that the Pan-Africanists brought. So it was just like a hostile environment. How do you it really is. Um, one-on-one? Yeah, I don't, I don't think, to be honest, the best environment is a mass environment. Like mass debates, to me, aren't the, they, I think they're cool, but I think a better way is relationship because you're in a crowd of people and they got their crew. It's almost like a rap battle, you know, <laughs> even when you know your guy lost the rap battle, you still gonna act like he didn't. So, <laughs> you know, um, so I, I think, I think that, um, you know, one of the ways I do it, cause I got it was, he was everything like he was everything more simple to everything. So I ended up in the barbershop. I just got really upset one day and I was really, uh, Sick of them, maybe some of the Bible's been changed. And I just said, where? And you know, and so I ended up um, talking to them and engaging them about canonicity and the history of the fact that actually Christianity is an indigenous African religion. You can't just say, you know, African natural religions are the only, it's what, what a natural religion, which is weird, is whatever a person choose to be their religion is a natural religion in my mind. So from a historical perspective, we're not talking about from an authentic Jesus Christ-centered perspective. I'm just talking about generally. And so, um, and, and talking to them about, you know, the history of the church fathers, uh, how John Mark was from Libya. I mean, the guy that wrote the main synoptic that was used by Matthew and Mark, I mean, Matthew and Luke to develop and, and lay out their synoptic gospel was John Mark, you know, who excuse me? Who evangelized northeastern Africa single-handedly? You know, so all the way down to ancient Nubia that fought off Muslims. It's a Muslim invasion and never got co-opted. So, and talking to them about that and talking to them personally and engaging on that, you know, a lot of guys end up backing up because what I found is when you are a knowledgeable Christian, they don't they don't deal well. They're really used to. Christians who aren't well read or who just gonna say, well, I just believe he did it for me, you know, or, and, and you know, we're not mad that he did it for you, but you got to talk about some other things in relation to that. And so that my, my main thing is first off relational. Number two, listening, hearing what they're saying, listening out and, and picking out the fallacies in it, particularly the philosophical fallacies that's in it. One of the things that I talk to them a lot about is I say, man, man, like, talk to me about the resources that you're getting this from, you know? So if they say something like, well, hieroglyphics, I said, so walk me through the Hebrew alphabet, I mean, they're the, not the Hebrew, the Egypt, Egyptian alphabet, and talk to me about how that corresponds with the hieroglyphics and your reading of the hieroglyphics and your ability to know that that particular thing had to do with Atom and, and that being Adam, the sun, and, and the clay making of Adam, original, just all of that stuff. And so I said, can you really read hieroglyphics? And number two, I talked to them about original sourcing. So I said, I don't mind, I don't mind you having a philosophy or history. And we don't, we don't negate that Egypt, even when you read like a Zondervan illustrated commentary, which one of the strongest to me, background commentaries on the market. If you read an IVP backgrounds by Keener, when you're just doing exegetical work for the New Testament and even the Old Testament for the Zondervan one, you'll see 
um, everything from uh, uh, Ugaritic and Arctic and Egyptian um, background that influenced the black ground of the Bible. But we don't say we would never say that this the Bible was written from hieroglyphs and Moses got it from there and that type of stuff. And so one of the things that I begin to engage them with is just talking about original sources. And matter of fact, when they begin to get into uh, Massey or Macy, I can't remember his name, but when they start getting into some of the guys, I'll say, well, let's get out his bibliography and let's begin looking at some of the sources that he's rooting it in. And then when you find that sort of, you know, none of, none of, these, none of these books stand up because a lot of books, even in the Afrocentric bookstores, don't have um, don't have uh, uh, um, original sourcing that connects them to a chronological history, uh, and so most of it conspiracy theory. And so, to me, to be honest, it uses the superstition of people. Number one, of whites and white supremacy. Secondly, it uses the lack of identity culturally that blacks have in the United States. And and the um, the disposition towards the church because the church has made some what I believe authentic mistakes. So we're not like free of guilt, and they uh, they and hurt and put all of that stuff together and use it as a potent mix to spoon feed people false doctrine. So yeah, yeah, and it's 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 so crazy. And and you reference it too in in your in what you were saying. A lot of the conversations that I've had and then people that come to me and access to produce resources or do podcasts on this issue will say, I'll say, well, where did they get their information? Or I'll ask them and they were like, well, watch this, watch this video. And they'll Absolutely. forward me a, a Facebook video, a YouTube video. And I'm like, okay, uh, anybody can produce that. That's like sending me a Wikipedia article. What, what, Absolutely. what, is, the, what is the facts? Or uh one guy told me he was like, "Read, uh, watch the Hidden Colors documentary. All the answers will be there. You'll be enlightened." That's that's the and same thing. Somebody did that to me today. <laughs> <laughs> I still have yet to see it. Have you seen the Hidden Colors documentary? I've, I've looked at a few of them. I mean, you know, again, one of the things um, that I try to be very careful of is make it. it I want to do authentic research. I don't want to just make everything black so that if everything's black, then that's what makes it for black people or for or trustworthy, you know. So I think that's the thing that even as an apologist, you got to be careful of, of plunging yourself so into these resources to where I mean, and it can and like if you're not strong in the faith, like. And you don't have accountability and you're not getting in the word regularly. If you get lost, because that's that's when Ecclesiastes is right when it says, you know, the reading of books can be wearying to the soul without the balance of the scriptures, biblical community, and um, nurturing you, you can just be all lost in some limbionic world sauce that you won't be able to come back from. And so, being very, I would that's one thing I would say to people: making sure that you balance your research that you go into that may take you out of the normal waters that you're used to in a way that will make you doubt. So you got to make sure that you're constantly balancing that or rooting it back in the scriptures, back in Christian history and that type of thing. So, yeah. Yeah. I, and that, that's so very true. Cause a lot of, I, I remember when I was an undergrad and the whole Illuminati theory was big and I saw people just get sucked in trying to figure out all these graphs and codes and they got pulled out of the church um, yeah. trying to research. And it's like, 
hey, it's, it's not necessary. So I think that's important for us to remember as apologists, as we're trying to engage people, that's a, a very good point. And I, I thank you for sharing that because it keeps us, you know, in the realm of safety and not um, tipping over um, and going somewhere off. And then the saints got to try to bring us back <laughs> while we was trying to go get other people. Um, what can the people that come to the conference expect? One of the things that the conference we try to do is people that are actually doing this stuff. So everyone that's teaching, whatever they're teaching, uh, is that everyone basically is doing that particular thing, and they were hand-chosen for that. So if you look at, you know, a young lady, uh, Ikea, she's teaching on uh, teaching women on certain things about young, younger millennial women about singleness and stuff that she wanted to work through and that type of thing. And so she's talking through that journey. You know, uh, you got another guy teaching on Hebrew Israelites. He engages them. You have someone talking about white privilege who who's experienced that and worked through what that looks like in their life. You got another person talking about Black Lives Matter movement. Um, you got another person talking about post-traumatic uh, stress disorder, dealing with that as African-Americans. You got one person talking about engaging the Islams, which you, that's Carl Ellis. He's done that for years, you know, and so forth and so on. I'll be teaching on it's Christianity, the white man's religion. But there, there will be so many, I mean, each and every, that, that's what's beautiful about the conference, is it's not like just ivory towerism, and I'm not dogging anybody or anything. It's, it, it's both it's scholarly practitioners. So people who both get into books, but also get on the block. And I think that that's an important part of it because you can't talk to people about reaching somebody and you haven't talked to people. You've just read about it and grafted something together and then get in a room and tell the people to do something you haven't done. And so I think, uh, I think, I think that that's the biggest piece of the conference and you're going to walk away with tools. So you're not just getting lectured to, you're actually going to walk away with practical tools on what it looks like to engage so that you can kind of build your toolkit of things that you can utilize in whatever class you go to uh, over time. And then of course, um, one of the things that's going to be special about this conference is, is uh, uh, Perkins, this is one of his last, uh, this is his last tour after this, he's done. Oh, wow. So, so, um, so John Perkins, it will not be doing any more speaking. He's 85 years old. And so we were blessed to get him here and he's coming to extra day to hang out. He said, after I read what he's, you know, I go a lot of conferences. He called me, I go to a lot of conferences, but you know, he said, when I read, actually read what this one is about, he said, and I see so much of what the conference is talking about actually happening. He says, I want to build relationships and just be around this generation as I'm fading. And I was like, wow, that, that's big. And so uh, that was really, really encouraging. I think Soon Ben Ra is going to bring a unique voice to the table because I think he can say some things. Uh, and I've heard him say some things that African-Americans can't say uh, that I think is good coming from an uh, uh, immigrant uh, American whose family immigrated to America uh, from Korea. And him being able to talk about race from an immigrant perspective, which is beautiful. Like we have one of our elders is from Jamaica and him talking about coming into America as a black immigrant and how he came from Jamaica. That's a mostly black country and that they don't really deal with racism per se on mm -hmm. the relational level. He says he said but when he came to America at eight years old, he was immediately he could immediately feel and experience and see the nuances of him being a black man in America almost immediately, which was a oh, culture wow. shock for him. He said it was a culture shock for him coming to America. Um, 
and, and he said things that people try to say doesn't that's clearly racism. So, you know, you got a Sunshine Ra coming with that particular perspective of not only talking about his experiences, but also um, being a studied man. And then you have uh, H. that's just going to probably just continue to root us in a commitment to the centrality of preaching the word. And uh, I'll, I'll be talking about the spiritual warfare of, of apologetics, because I think many times we don't think of apologetics as spiritual warfare. But when we look at the scriptures, it clearly says, clearly says in the pastoral epistle that, uh, that, that it's spiritual warfare. And so talking about what that looks like just to inspire and engage people on not forgetting the fact that we got to engage in spiritual warfare when it comes to this type of stuff. Awesome. That's, that's exciting. Uh, I know people are going to be blessed that are in attendance. I know in addition to this, you've been doing a woke series, uh, for your church. And I think it's very important, um, that, kind of churches look at what what you're doing as a model because um as i was reading through rufus burrow's work on um cone and he talked about in the 60s what cone was kind of trying to rest what he was trying to navigate through was young black um black men leaving the church feeling like the church didn't speak to their issues and as i'm reading yeah. that that's that's what we're dealing with today people are leaving the church because people aren't speaking to their issues. And now how I would- now, I, know we're on a, I know we're on a podcast. What, what book was that? You gotta get that to me. Um, it's uh, Rufus Burrow's work on Cone. I think he did like The Life of Cone. Uh, I'm not sure what the exact title is. Okay, um, got it, got it. Gotcha, but I can- All right, I know So that's okay. Um, but he, as he was talking about it, I could see our day. And that's mm -hmm. why what you're doing is so important because while I would disagree with how how far Cone stretched it in his work on liberation theology, I think what he was trying to do was present an apologetic uh, for the Christian faith Absolutely. that went a little bit too far because I think it was rooted more in it kind of was rooted a little bit I feel in bitterness, and so I think that kind of clouds the lenses of how you navigate things. Wow, wow, um, wow. but. Uh, I, I obviously I would agree with a lot of what he's what he's the work he's produced. I think he is a great asset, but I think I would disagree with how far he pushed it. So I think yeah. what you're doing with the stay woke is kind of helping us balance it because at the end of the day, I think what I've been reading in in Roberts and Jay Dotus Roberts' work um, about liberation and reconciliation is really kind of that balance in between. I think mm -hmm. he's kind of temper what Cone is doing. Yeah. And I think that's what you're kind of trying to present with the stay, the stay woke um, series. Yeah. Yeah. The, um, it was clear to me that we needed to pause after um, these last uh, unarmed killings and really begin to engage uh, this, uh, just for a few weeks to really begin that. And really our desire is to get an action plan going uh, because I know um, that, uh, what's the young man's name? I know they're doing, they're working on some stuff which, uh, with a national initiative, and they're sending around, one of my former interns sent something to me. I'm looking for it. Uh, okay. and, and basically, we wanted to start, we wanted to do a action plan that developed a comprehensive strategy for the church to be effectively engaging uh, in a way that reflects uh, what we've always believed. We've, I mean, 
for me, the inner city church the, the, and the African-American led church really didn't see the false dichotomy of social gospel, spiritual gospel. Uh, you know, it was the gospel regenerates and it restores in every area of life. And so that means it restores, uh, it restores your soul. We've always believed that. That's always by faith alone, through grace alone, through Christ alone, inerrancy, infallibility, the Trinity, you know, hypostatic union, 100% God. We've all of that. We believe all of that was not just a systematic theology to put in a book on a shelf, but we also believe that the incarnation of Christ was a call for us to reflect that incarnation by the church being uh, uh, like, like Daryl Gouda talks about in the incarnation of the church and the church's mission. You know, the whole idea of the role of the church to incarnationally be incarnational presence in the city in such a way where it's not just the programs of the church, but it's the people of the church that gather and scatter into the world in their different professions and their different uh, activities and bring the nutrition of the kingdom into their educational spheres, into their economic spheres, into their civic service spheres, into their entrepreneurial spheres, into their blue collar spheres, into their block spheres, into their third places. And so I think that um, there has to be a resurgence of that because I think now there's a disconnection between the church and millennials in particular that I don't think the church really realizes it. I think that there are some new church planning that's going on and some mega churches that have I would say connected with white millennials, but I think African-American millennials, and this is my es estimation from what I'm, I'm hearing. I mean, I get so many pastors asking me, how do you, like our church is 80% people b between the age of 22 and 32. So people always ask, how y'all get all those young people there? And I said, first off, the adults, <laughs> you know, <laughs> um, you know, that's, 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 a, that's, that's one real important thing that I think the church has to recognize you got can't think of them as children like these are grown people you know and, and 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 when you think of them as grown people you think of them as participants coming equally to the table to be a part of the hand of the plow that means a lot of churches have to shake up their leadership structures so that they can begin to help uh younger people get their hands to the plow too because if you come into a church and you got man these these folks man they're these young folks are, I mean, young adults are running corporations, you know, they're teachers, they're educators, they're business people. They do all that. They come into the church and you want them to be junior everything. And so you gotta, you gotta make room in your leadership structure expansively um, uh, to, to be able to say as people mature spiritually, if they're spiritually mature, 25, 30 year old, 35, how do we get them involved and even bring them to the table to hear from them? Uh, to, for them to be able to be a part of the incarnational mission of the church in that particular place. I think it's so important. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think it's, it's, it's so needed um, because like you said, there's kind of this gap in thinking and not letting uh, millennials have leadership roles in the church plays a major part in how we engage them because we have to have seats at the table to really understand what's happening. Absolutely. In our, um, in our um, context. And a lot of people in, in this way, I was telling someone the other day, a lot of people look at like the Republican party and say, you know, they're, they're, they're crazy because they don't bring minorities at the table. But then in the same regard, then we as minorities sometimes don't bring millennials at the table. So we're doing the same thing just in a different way. And we see where it's the GOP 
<laughs> to, to this. And, yeah. and people are like, how do we get here? But you didn't have the right people at the table. So we have to look at that and let that be an example and say, hey, if we don't do something here, it might not be racially in that sense, but it is generationally um, in, in, the, in our sense. And, and for millennials, I think, for me, being a millennial, there's kind of this uh, generation war that's going on mm. and we need each other. Um, old young people are Absolutely. saying, well, I don't need them because I kind of know it. And it's like, no, you need their wisdom. They need your strength. And Absolutely. if we can kind of bridge the gap and say, you know, I don't have to repeat their mistakes if I listen to them. And so as millennials, we have to humble ourselves to listen to instruction. And then the, the older generation um, has to be willing to give us positions of leadership. So, yeah, it was interesting when um, during the second temple period uh, in Haggai chapter uh, two, and then you go over to Ezra four, I think it's like 14 through 16. Uh, you know, God would tell, told him in Haggai, he said, this temple don't look like the temple you remember. That means it was older people that were still there over 77 years later that remembered what the temple looked like when Solomon built it. Mm -hmm. So when you but when you go over to Ezra and you look at how the younger generation was responding to the building of the foundation of the temple, it, and it wasn't even the temple, it was just the foundation and the older generation, the older generation wept because it didn't look like Solomon's temple. But the younger generation was just excited that they got to participate. So they were worshiping and weeping. And they said, you couldn't tell the difference between the two. And, wow. you know, and so I think that, you know, one of the things that um, the older generation I would encourage is to is to begin to uh, uh, tell the story of the past without glorifying the past and making it bigger than it was. Because at the end of the day, Solomon served the Lord with a half of a heart. And so. You know, it's, you know what I'm saying? So it like <laughs> the temple made him more spiritual, you know? And so, and then on the other hand, you know, young people say, hey, how do I hear the stories so that what happened in Judges doesn't happen in our generation? Because we don't want to become the third generation after the Josh, the second generation after the Joshua generation, which did not know the law of the Lord and did not learn his ways. And so I think if we don't have that gap, we're ending up, reproducing that in Christian America among ethnic minority African-Americans where there's this great generational divide. And you don't just see it in the church, you see it in the culture because you even see how the Black Lives Matter movement sort of distanced itself from the civil rights movement, not knowing that it stands on the shoulders of the civil rights movement, whether you like it or not. Mm -hmm. The fact that you go to the website and it says, not your mama's civil rights movement, it's kind of like, man, that, like, you can't, that's not even, like, like that's not even cool because you, you they're the blueprint for you, you know, so yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Dr. Dates was talking about it when he was on the podcast talking about Laquan McDonald. He was talking about how when he went to the protest in Chicago after that um, situation happened, how the Black Lives Matter people, when when I believe it was Jesse Jackson or someone got up that was yeah. someone respected and they started kind of heckling. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Like, yeah. You know, the lack of respect sometimes. Um, in the name of getting justice, it's it's kind of ironic. So, <laughs> yeah. Is is there anything you would like to leave with our listeners? What would be your last words? And how could um, our listeners register uh, for the conference? Um, well, you can go to thrivingfrequency.org. That's thrivingfrequency.org and register. Still time to register. We, we have to close registration, but it's not closed. But 
once uh, you can still come and to the conference and register at the door as well. And so that's great. And then um, I think that's going to that's going to be great. Which, uh, another thing I want to leave is we're also having a huge panel of comprehensive. We did it at our church one Sunday, had uh, professionals. But this time we're having all different types of beastly Christian professionals from a vast amount of disciplines that are on the panel. And it's going to be nuts. Um, wow. And so it's going to be crazy hearing their perspective because they're going to be some of the people that we're working with to develop this action plan. And so you need to come to the conference because I think that's going to be helpful for you to reproduce it in your city and to see the Lord do some mighty things. Um, so they can register at thrivingfrequency.org. And um, I'm excited uh, to have it been on here and I'm appreciative of it. Oh, thank you. I, I enjoy having you and it's such a blessing. Amen, amen, amen. <laughs> Thank you for listening to another episode of the Jude 3 Project podcast. You can catch all our past episodes at www.jude3project.com backslash podcast. You can follow us on iTunes by searching Jude 3 Project. Also, you can follow us on Twitter at Jude 3 Project, on Instagram at Jude 3 Project, and on Facebook at facebook.com. Um, backslash Jude 3 Project. And remember, you can donate on our site. So if this um, this podcast and this ministry is a blessing to you, help support us financially um, by going on our website at Jude3Project.com and hitting the Donate tab um, and donating. Consider donating to us. Thank you so much. Remember, at the Jude 3 Project, we're helping you to know what you believe and why you believe it.